tell me. After my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. And that's Peter Curtin. And I am impressed <laughs> that he was able to come back from the dead and do that quote live. <laughs> Excellent, right? Uh, this is Jen. This is Becky. This is Too Close to Home. And we have Jimmy actually participating with us today. Boop, boop, boop. We're going to be talking about the vampire Dusseldorf, Peter Curtin. And Jimmy has, I have a terrible German accent, as in I don't have any. <laughs> um, I keep sounding like I'm French and I'm like, this is not what I'm going for. This is not the vibe. <laughs> and Jimmy will literally walk around the house muttering things in German. And, and he thinks he's adorable. And it kind of is. But also <laughs> ridiculously overstated. So <laughs> when we were doing this, I was trying to practice my German accent. And then I was like, you know what? You're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so all the quotes uh, today are going to be read by Jimmy. Yay. So the sources today are Wikipedia, allthatsinteresting.com, Britannica.com, biography.com, Murdy, Murderpedia and the cult of weird.com. This takes place like late 1800s, early 1900s. There's like a lot of back and forth on facts and each source kind of differing in like minute details. So I'm going to do my best to suss out the closest to the truth, but don't come at me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about how a vampire is made. Peter Curtin was born May 26th. 1883 in Mulheim am Rhein. He was born into poverty, the one of the oldest of 13 children. Large families again. Mm -hmm. Only two died at an early age. Oh. So they were definitely winning the child lottery. They all lived in a tiny one bedroom apartment. Yeesh. <laughs> his parents were severely abusive alcoholics. His father would beat his mother as well as their children, especially when drunk. And Early 19th century Germany, she wasn't able to do much but endure the violence. It wasn't mm -hmm. like a culture of like, okay, get out and leave and protect yourself and your kids. You're like, you made your bed lie in it, bitch. Mm -hmm. like, you asked for it when nobody did. Being the eldest surviving son, Curtin was the target of much of his father's physical abuse and re re frequently refused to return home from school as a result. His father often forced his wife and children to assemble before him. Which I'm like, are you really assembling? It's a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> you should all be assembled at all I times. want you all to look over here. You don't even have to move. Um, <laughs> and he would actually order his wife to strip naked, and then he would rape her in front of the children. Oh, that's lovely. It's called family memories, you know. Curtin once remarked, If they hadn't been married, it would have been rape. Oh, so since they were married, it was cool, cool, cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's consensual at that point. Like, that, that marriage license changes it, you know? Yeah. He claimed that his first murders were when he was nine years old. Two classmates and Peter were on a raft floating down the River Rhine, as you do, <laughs> just Huckleberry Finn style, <laughs> when Peter pushed one off and he started, that boy started drowning, so the other boy jumped in to try to save him. He quickly determined that he wasn't going to be able to save him. The currents were too swift, so he went back to the raft. When he got to it, Peter held his head underwater <gasps> until the boy died. Oh. The death of the two boys were attributed to an accident, and he was cleared. Mm. Like, come on now. But it makes me think of that um, 
Macaulay Culkin, the other, the good son. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like nobody expects a child to be fucking devious like that, mm-hmm. you know? No. So when he was 12 years old, he befriended a dog catcher that lived in his building. I'm like, <laughs> how are you a, like, <laughs> this has to be back in those days because this doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> like, you know what? You catch dogs for a fuck yeah, son. The dog catcher taught Peter how to masturbate the dogs. Oh. And allowed him to watch the dog catcher torture them. So he would capture dogs, torture them. Oh. Perform acts of bestiality. Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Most normal it's children. not at all what I thought you were going to say. I no. thought this was going to be pleasant like he was like being nice and then the kid was going to kill him. I, I didn't see that coming. No, 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 no. Well, mm, neither okay. did the dogs. Well, thanks for ruining my day, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> the nor- normal children would have been like, the fuck you know but this he was like super excited about this he loved the friendship he had somebody he was bonding to he didn't you know obviously didn't have that with his parents he also learned how to practice bestiality on dogs from the good dog catcher and if that doesn't bring you close together i don't know what will i don't either if that's not a bonding moment Hmm. are there any when he was 14 years old his father was arrested and jailed for 18 months in 1897 for repeatedly raping peter's eldest sister Hmm. His mother was able to obtain a separation order afterwards and later remarried and relocated to Dusseldorf. Around that time as well, he um, formed a relationship with a girl around his age that was consensual. And everything was normal until, like, he would, uh, they would, you know, get hot and heavy. And she would let Peter undress her and fondle her. But, like, when it came down to, like, rounding third base... (laughs) She was like, no, dog, I ain't ready for that. So to relieve his sexual urges, he decided to resort to acts of bestiality with sheep, pigs, and goats in local stables. You always find the cases with uh, bestiality, don't you? I I mean, (laughs) I have a kink. (laughs) I don't. Please don't. Nobody report me. (laughs) My dog are okay. My dog's okay. Don't worry. He once was in flagrante with a sheep who was understandably resisting the rape, so he <laughs> slit its throat, and at that moment, he orgasmed, discovering his pleasure from causing pain and death. Thus, he began stabbing and slashing animals with increasing frequency to achieve orgasms. Just look on Becky's face right now, you guys. I just I can't even describe it. Like You should have warned me this was a Mushroom Stamp episode. Oh, yeah, probably. Well, I mean, I told you it was going to be gross. Yeah, but that did not prepare me. <laughs> Is this like when uh, you were talking about the toy box killer with JJ and then you were like, and it gets worse. And he's like, this was already bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he did state later he was caught uh, doing it to a pig and that stopped his behavior with bestiality. But I was like, come on, man. Come on. You obviously weren't embarrassed about it. He attempted to rape the same sister his father had earlier molested, so his deviance just continued to escalate at this time. At 14, he obtained employment as a apprentice molder, which his father was a molder by trade. It lasted two years before he decided he had to to leave. He stole all the money he could find in his (laughs) household, plus 300 marks from his employer, and just bounced, bounced, like, I'm done. He was jailed for the first time when he was 15, having been convicted of theft, the first of 17 sentences covering 27 Mm. years. At 16, he ran away from home and ended up with Koblenz. Here he began a relationship with an 18-year-old sex worker. 
He claimed she willingly submitted to every sexual perversion he demanded. And honestly, like, I'm like, I'm not sure she was exactly willing other than the fact that he was probably paying her for it. And she's right. desperate, you know? Right. I don't know about that. Like, I don't want to pass any judgments on old girl and think that she wasn't into this shit. But I have an inkling that she <laughs> might not have been. <laughs> However, due to his new life of petty crime, he was arrested for breaking and entering and sentenced to a month in prison. He left jail in August of 1899 and went right back to his criminal mischief. He would serve many short-term prison sentences in this period for various misdemeanors. With each successive sentence, his rage against society and his capacity for depravity increased. He discovered a fascination for brutal sexual acts while in solitary confinement, like, because you ain't got nothing else but time. Mm -hmm. This enhanced his fantasies so much, he began to break prison rules to ensure the maximum time in solitary confinement. If that's not a fucked up head, he's like, you know, I'm having a lot of fun by myself, completely secluded, and you know it wasn't a nice jail. Mm -mm. If there's anything we learned from Eastern State Pen, shit was not good. That was state of the art when that bitch came around. Right. Okay. His father around this time was also arrested again for molesting another of his sisters, and this time was sentenced to jail for three years. Hmm. Precious. This is where things really pick up. Oh, okay. That was just... uh... Yeah, that was fodder. (laughs) In November 1899, he picked up an 18-year-old girl in Alistrasa and persuaded her to go to a local park with him. There, he claimed to have engaged with sex with the girl before strangling her into unconsciousness with his bare hands before leaving the scene, believing her to be dead. There are no records of this girl um, reporting this, and while he believed her dead, it may be that she just survived this attack and was, of course, too ashamed to admit it as many victims of sexual assault feel. Mm-hmm. Especially in those times. There right. was not any... You were considered damaged goods and... Yeah. On top of that, like, bitch, were you showing your ankles? You show <laughs> yeah. your wrist? Exactly. You naughty girl. <laughs> he later stated that um, committing this act, he had proven to himself that the greatest heights of sexual ecstasy could only be achieved in this manner. Meaning murdering. Between 1900 and 1904, he spent more time in prison. Some of the charges were pertaining to thefts, as well as an attempted murder of a girl. He was released in 1904 and then drafted into the Imperial German Army. He was deployed to the city of Metz in Lorraine to serve in the 98th Infantry Regiment, although he soon deserted. He was very anti-establishment, anti-government, fuck all this shit. I mean. FYI, the name of the the, uh, military sounds cool, the Imperial. Right. Sounds badass. Makes me feel Star Wars. <laughs> that autumn, Curtin began committing acts of arson, which he would discreetly watch from a distance as emergency services attempted to extinguish the flames. Now, we all know that that is uh, something that um, a lot of serial killers will do in their escalation of An arsonist. They love arson. It m- really Watching. gets the motor revving. It really does. He's probably up, over there just going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Many of the fires were in barns and haylofts, and he would admit to police that he committed around 24 acts of arson upon his arrest that New Year's Eve. He, of course, bragged that these fires got him sexually excited with the hopes of seeing tramps burned alive. Hmm. I committed mine acts of arson for the same reasons. Sadistic propensity. I got pleasure for some of the glow of the fire. The cries for help the best decision I've ever made. It is. (laughs) 
As a result of the, his desertion, he was tried by military court and convicted of desertion in addition to multiple counts of arson, robbery, and attempted robbery. The latter charges pertaining to acts he had also committed that year and was subsequently in prison from 1905 to 1913. And you can imagine, mm. I'm sure it was a great time. During his lengthy stay at prison, he spent most of it, much of his time in solitary confinement for insubordination. <laughs> this day was unique in that they convict, conducted severe forms of discipline, and he actually fueled the fire of his sexual excitement that he had experienced in his earlier prison stays. He would have graphic fantasies about killing masses of people to stick it to society, and these thoughts were intoxicating to him. He derived that sort of pleasures that these from these visions that other people would get from thinking about a naked woman, adding that he occasionally spontaneously ejaculated while preoccupied with such thoughts. Oh. Those are some words that I didn't think would go together. Occasionally, spontaneously ejaculated. <laughs> Never thought I'd put all three of those in a sentence together. <laughs> so in the May of 1913, he was burgling a tavern in Mulheim al Rhein. He happened upon nine-year-old Christine Klein asleep in her bed. Come on. Mm-hmm hard so he strangled her and slashed her throat twice and ejaculated from the sound of the blood dripping from her wounds to the floor the child's corpse was pallid there was hardly any postmortem staining and the tongue was severely bitten on the throat there were two wounds separated from each other the one shallow only one to two millimeters deep and the other very deep nine centimeters in length the upper wound suggested a single stroke and the lower wound had been made in four movements which honestly like that's Interesting that they had that knowledge at that time. Mm -hmm. Like that forensic autopsy. But, you know, like they were still in bodies and shit and always examining stuff. So yeah. maybe that was normal. I don't know. Just feels like more advanced than I would have expected at the time. Oh, yeah, I agree. There were signs of some sexual molestation, but not rape, which that part I'm like, you can know about the four strokes, but you don't know about this. <laughs> On the following day, Curtin specifically returned to drink in a tavern located directly opposite where he had murdered her and ordered that he could listen to the locals' reaction to the child's murder. He would later tell investigators that he derived an extreme sense of gratification from the general di disgust, repulsion, and outrage he had heard in the patrons' conversations. It really concerns me how you're laughing. <laughs> it was on 25 May 1913. I had been stealing, specializing in public bars or inns where the owners lived on the floor above. In a room above an inn at Kroenmulheim, I discovered a child of about ten asleep. Her head was facing the window. I seized with my left hand and strangled her about a minute and a half. The child woke up and struggled but lost consciousness. I had a small but sharp pocket knife with me, and I held the child's head and cut her throat. I heard the blood spurt and drip on the mat beside the bed. It spurted in an arc right over my hand. The whole thing lasted about three minutes. Then I locked the door again and went back home to Dusseldorf. In the weeks after her funeral, he would visit her grave, and when he would handle the soil, he would spontaneously ejaculate. Barf. <laughs> Sorry, I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> Barf. <laughs> Her uncle Otto was actually suspected of this murder as he had asked her father, Peter Klein, for a loan and he had refused. In a violent rage, he threatened to do something to his brother that he would, quote, would remember all his life. 
In the room where the child had been killed, the police found a handkerchief with the initials PK, which Peter Curtin, Peter Klein. Mm. And it seemed conceivable that Otto had borrowed it from his brother, Peter. He had he was charged with Christine's murder, but the jury, although partly convinced of his guilt, felt that the evidence was not sufficiently strong enough and he was rightly acquitted. In July 1913, he would commit another burglary with the aid of a skeleton key, which fucking frightening to live in that time. Just go and get a skeleton key and like, fuck it. You can go mm-hmm. anywhere you want to go. Yeah. Some fucking Harry Potter shit. Like, just... <laughs> <sighs> No, thank you. <laughs> but this time um, was a home instead of like an inn. He discovered a 17-year-old girl named Gertrude Franken asleep in her bed. Curtin manually strangled the girl, ejaculating at the sight of the blood spurting from her mouth before leaving the creams, cream, crime scene. <laughs> Curtin managed to escape the scene of this attempted murder and the earlier murder of Klein undetected. Just days after the attempted murder of Franken on the 14th of July, he was arrested for a series of arson attacks and burglaries. He had committed a series of acts and strangulations on attacks on people in Dusseldorf at the same time. So this motherfucker is always wilding. Mm-hmm. There really isn't ever a cool down period for him. Other than when he's in prison. And that's when that motherfucker is just sitting around spontaneously ejaculating and fucking... The brick uh, wall in the yeah. solitary confinement. Because that's great for mental health. When World War One broke out, and that was between 1914 and 1918. Curtin joined the German army. Military discipline did not suit him, though, and he deserted his barracks. He was jailed when captured and remained in prison until 1921, his longest sentence to date. So let's get romantic. <laughs> Upon release, he relocated to Altenburg, where he initially lived with his sister. Through her, he met Augusta Scharf, a sweet shop owner who was formerly a sex worker and had previously been convicted of shooting her fiancé to death. Aww. So much made in heaven. (laughs) He posed as a former POW, and within two years, they married. She did not agree to marry him. Actually, it was not until he threatened to kill her and had a knife at her neck, and she was like, fucking fine, I'll marry you. Aww. That's how, a, that's how me and JJ agree to get exactly. married. <laughs> you held a knife to his neck. You're like, motherfucker, we going? No, no, him to me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the angel in the relationship. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> While they would have sex regularly, she later told investigators he could only have sex by fantasizing about committing violence against another individual, and that after their wedding night, he engaged in intercourse with his wife only at her invitation. It's the only thing he ever did right. (laughs) (laughs) He spent the next four years living a life of relative normality and found work as a molder, even becoming active in a trade union. I bet he was still doing some shady and shit. He just wasn't getting caught at this time. Right. I agree. He formed no close relationships. And in 1925, he and his wife returned to Dusseldorf. It was then he began affairs with a servant girl named Tita and a housemaid named Mech. Both women were frequently subjected to partial strangulation and when they admitted to, submitted to intercourse with Tito once being informed by Curtin that's what love means <laughs> Jimmy was ready when his wife discovered his infidelity Tita reported Curtin to the police claiming he had seduced her Mech alleged that he had raped her and the more serious charge was later dropped although Tita's allegations were pursued thus earning him a eight-month prison sentence for seduction and threatening behavior for seduction 
Okay. Call me guilty, okay? <laughs> I'll seduce a motherfucker. Right, Jimmy? I seduce motherfuckers just walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, girl. These sweatpants. Ooh. Need gray hair, so I'm growing out. Listen. That's a whole new definition for Silver Fox. <laughs> I'm taking a book. He served six months of the sentence with his early release um, being upon the condition he left Dusseldorf. He actually appealed that ruling and was able to relocate back to the city. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Call me guilty. This my home. <laughs> After his release, he, of course, picked up his old habits and between 1925 and 1928, he attacked four women in Dusseldorf, strangling them to the point of consciousness, often during sex. 1929, the Curtin Depression. <laughs> Peter Curtin's preferred method of torture and murder was stabbing, usually with a pair of sharpened scissors. In addition to physical mutilation, he would severely abuse his victims and strangle them into unconsciousness. He also occasionally returned to the crime scenes to discuss his crimes with police under the guise of a concerned citizen. <laughs> <sighs> I can imagine him walking up. That's interesting. That's an interesting police officer. <laughs> On the 3rd of February, 1929, he stalked an elderly woman named Apollina Kuhn. Waiting until she was... Shielded from the view of potential witnesses by bushes, he pounced upon her, grabbing her by the lapels of her coat and shouting the words, No roar! Don't scream! He dug her into, he drug her into nearby undergrowth where he proceeded to stab her 24 times with sharpened pair of scissors. While some of the stabs were so deep they penetrated bone, she survived. Oh. I know, that's, I was not, I was thinking it was going to get worse, and it got better for once. Right? Like, go home, girl. Use a survival. <laughs> On the night of the 9th of February, 1929, now, 1929 was, like, popping for him, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm going to just tell you, like, there's going to be a lot of 1929s in here. He was wilding out. Mm-hmm. He waylaid a eight-year-old girl named Rosa Olinger. So as, no, nobody's off limits to him. Children... Middle-aged, teenagers, elderly, nobody's off limits. Nope. Okay. Sex worker, not sex worker. Fuck it. You got a vagina? We in. We down. No attacks on men? I don't think so. Okay. But like, think about it. Like, women are usually weaker, per se. So maybe that's part of it. He waylaid a eight-year-old girl at this time, Rosa Olinger, as she walked down Dusseldorf Street. He strangled her into unconsciousness before stabbing her in the stomach temple genitals and heart with a oh. pair of scissors spontaneously ejaculating as he knifed the child jesus Duh, so much spontaneous ejaculating so much this is the gross part i can't even stand this this is the gross part this he then inserted his semen into her vagina with his fingers uh. that's how depraved he was let me he loved degrading women you just scoop it out his fucking britches? Just whew. the fuck is wrong with him? I mean, and that would later get him off again. That's the fucked up thing. Like, I mean, all of that's fucked up. But the thing is, like, he could even think about it and be like, ugh. You know, like, it's just mm. a lot. And there's, I was talking to Becky about this earlier, but we talk about a lot of things in this podcast that some other podcasts, especially ones that are done by women, will not talk about. And it's not because I 
want to glorify these things that have happened to these victims, I feel like it's important to understand the gravity of these crimes and what this victim went through. And in this case, absolutely horrific. He tried to hide the body under beneath the hedge, but returned to a scene later and doused her body in kerosene and lit it ablaze. Mm. And he, of course, spontaneously ejected, ejaculated at the sight of this. Her body was found the following day. On February, oh no, here's one where he killed a man. On February 13th, he murdered 45-year-old mechanic Rudolf Scheer in the suburb of Flingen, Nord, stabbed him 20 times, particularly about the head, back, and eyes. Oh. Following the discovery of his body, he returned to the scene of the murder to converse with police, falsely informing one of the detectives that he had heard about it via telephone. <laughs> I was just called about it. <laughs> <laughs> While the victim profiles were all different, there were some similarities leading to believe that they were all perpetrated by the same deranged individual. All three crimes had been committed in the Flink Flingern district of Dusseldorf at dusk. Each victim had a multitude of stab wounds, likely inflicted in rapid succession, and invariably involving at least one wound to the temple, which is very odd. I it don't, is. you know, like if you, I can imagine someone getting stabbed in the head and you're like, okay, then I'm done, because it's a lot of force. Your skull is not exactly super thin, but all over, including the temple, I don't know. There was an absent, uh, absence of common motives such as robbery or rape. And the German press covered the attacks extensively when they discovered that the investigators believed that the attacker might be drinking the blood of the victims. He was mortalized in print as the vampire at Dusseldorf. The search for the killer received a major setback, however, when a learning disabled individual by the name Straussberg, accused of similar crimes, inexplic inexplicably admitted to all the so-called vampire killings. He was committed to asylum, and the police were convinced that the case was solved. Between March and July 1929, he attempted to strangle four women, one of whom he claimed to have thrown in the Rhine River. Either they never reported these crimes or it never happened. It's not known for sure. And then on August 8th, Peter met Maria Hahn, who he described as a girl looking for marriage. He arranged to take her on a date to the Neanderthal district of Dusseldorf the, the following Sunday. After several hours in Han's company, he lured her into a meadow that he could kill her. He later admitted Han had repeatedly pleaded with him to spare her life as he alternatively strangled her, stabbed her in the chest and head, or sat beside her body waiting for her to die. Han died approximately one hour after he had begun attacking her. Jesus. Being covered in blood and afraid his wife would connect him with the murder, he buried the body in a cornfield. He later returned to her body several weeks later with the intention of nailing her decomposing remains to a tree in a mock crucifixion to shock and disgust the public. Oh, my God. Well, twerking. Yeah. Shocked and disgusted. disgusted. She was too heavy, however. And that's where I'm like, I think that's one of the reasons why I predominantly preyed on these young women and elderly women is because they were not as he was not as strong. Obviously, mm -hmm. he couldn't take her and pick her up and set her up like that, like he intended. So he simply returned her corpse to the grave, but not before embracing and caressing the decomposing body as he laid beneath her remains. Oh, my God. Both before and after he attempted to impale Maria's body to the tree, he went to the grave many times and kept improving upon it. And in every time, I thought of what was lying there and was filled with satisfaction. 
Three months after Curtin had murdered Han, he posted an anonymous letter to the police in which he confessed to the murder, adding that her remains had been buried in a field. In this letter, Curtin also drew a crude map describing the location of the remains. The letter would prove sufficiently detailed to enable investigators to locate Han's remains on the 15th of November. Following Maria's murder, he changed up his weapon of choice from scissors to a knife to convince the police that were multiple killers on this spree. Mm. In the early morning, um, the 21st of August, he randomly stabbed an 18-year-old girl, a 30-year-old man, and a 37-year-old woman in separate attacks. All three were seriously wounded and all stated to the police that their assailant had not spoken a word to them before he attacked them. Just. Could you imagine you like. Walking down the street and he just shivs them. Just. Not a word. Not knowing is the scariest thing. He's completely out of control. Mm-hmm. A few days after these attack, he met two foster sisters, five and 14, at a fairground as they were on the way home. He sent the older of the two, Louise Lenson, to buy him cigarettes, which is the day and age when kids could buy mm-hmm. cigarettes, on the promise of being given 20 finning, uh, stating that he would watch the younger, which was Gertrude Homaker. Once she le- Louise left, he lifted Gertrude off the ground by her neck and strangled her into consciousness before cutting her throat and discarding her body in a patch of runner beans. When Luis returned, he partially strangled her before stabbing her about the torso, with one wound piercing her aorta, and he also bit her and twice cut her throat before sucking blood from the wounds. Neither girl had been sexually assaulted, and the fact that only Luis's footprints were found within seven meters of her body suggests that she may have attempted to flee from her attacker before collapsing. Gertrude uh, actually survived the attack, which was the five-year-old. And she gave the police a description of her attacker as a pleasant-looking male around 40 years old. The following day, he accosted a 27-year-old housemaid named Gertrude Schulte, whom he openly asked to engage in sex with him. Upon being turned down, he shouted, Will Dyson! Before repeatedly stabbing the woman in her head, neck, and shoulder and back. She survived her injuries, although she was unable to provide investigators with a clear description of her assailant, beyond assuming that her his age was around 40. Curtin attempted to murder two further victims, one by strangulation, the other by stabbing, in September before opting to predominantly use a hammer in his assaults. Oh, that's nice. Switching up weapons, switching up victims, switching up attack methods. Mm-hmm. He's charming. Trying to elude the police. So this is when his hammer attacks start. On September 30th, he met a 31-year-old servant girl named Ida Rutar at Dusseldorf Station. He persuaded her to go with him to a cafe and then for a walk in a local park by the Rhine River. Once they arrived to the park, he repeatedly struck her about the head with a hammer before and after he had raped her. At one stage in this assault, she regained consciousness and began pleading with Curtin to spare her life. In response, Curtin simply gave her other hammer blows on the head and misused her. On October 11th, he met 22-year-old Elizabeth Dorier outside a theater. She agreed to accompany Peter for a drink at the cafe before the pair took a train to Grafenberg with a view to walk alongside the Klein Dussel River. This is where she was struck once across her right temple with a hammer and then raped. He struck her repeatedly about the head and both temples with a hammer and left her for dead. Found the next morning, she was in a coma for a time before she did succumb to her injuries. On the 25th of October, Curtin attacked two women with a hammer, both survived, and in the second instance, this was only because his hammer broke in half. Mm. 
His last fatal attack was a five-year-old Gertrude Alberman. He persuaded the child to accompany him to the section of deserted allotments where he seized her by the throat and strangled her, stabbing her once in the left temple with a pair of scissors, as he always did. When she collapsed to the ground without sound, he stabbed her 34 times. Jesus, she's only five. Mm -hmm. And then placed her body in a pile of nettles close to the factory wall. By the end of 1929, Dusseldorf police had received more than 13,000 letters from the public. With the assistance surrounding police forces, each lead was painstakingly pursued, which is quite interesting. I mean, there was a lot of not giving a shit about women. <laughs> right. You know, and so they could have passed off blame and everything, but they did. They 13,000 letters and you're going to follow up on all of them. Shit. That's respectable. They probably wouldn't have if it had been like all sex workers and whatnot, but there were men, women, all ages. Nobody children. was safe. So, yeah, I don't think they had a choice but to take it serious. Yeah. As a result of this collective investigation into the killings, more than 9,000 individuals were interviewed, 2,600 other clues painstakingly pursued, and a list of 900,000 different names were compiled upon as an official potential suspect list. He did engage We've in We've narrowed it down to the entire town. <laughs> <laughs> it's only 900, 900 people, 900,000 people. <laughs> he did engage in a spate of non-fatal hammer attacks and attempted strangulations between the February and May of 1930, maiming 10 victims in these assaults. All the victims survived, and many were able to describe their attacker to police. And many of them talk about him being a nice-looking guy, around 40 years old, when you look at the pictures, he doesn't really look. He's got, like, the Hitler stash and everything. He's <laughs> like, not cute, man. It's not a look. Not a vibe. No. But I could see where in those days they might have thought that. Like, he was a, a man, and he survived, and he was pleasant enough acting, I guess, to outward people that he wasn't killing. <laughs> Let me just see what he looks like. On the 14th of May, 1930, an unknown man approached a 20-year-old woman named Maria Budlik at Dusseldorf Station. He discovered that she had traveled to Dusseldorf from Cologne in search of lodgings and employment, and he offered to direct her towards a local hostel. She agreed to follow the man, and although she became apprehensive when he attempted to lead her through a scarcely populated park, <laughs> they began to argue, whereupon another man approached the two, asking, Is he bothering you, ma'am? And when she nodded, the man with whom she had been arguing simply walked away. The identity of the man who walked away is not known. But the he man looks who, like a weirdo to me. Yeah. I don't think he's pleasant looking at all. No. And you're right, he does have a Hitler stash. <laughs> <laughs> the identity of the, the man who came to her aid, though, was Peter Curtin. He invited her to his apartment for dinner and drinks, and she... Oh, he's the one that saved her? That's not who she was arguing with? Yes, yeah, she was not arguing with him. She was... He saved her from that man. She quickly responded that she wasn't an idiot, and she was not interested in having sex with him. <laughs> like... You, I just went through that shit. I ain't about to try to fuck you either. <laughs> he calmly agreed and offered to lead her to a hotel, although he instead lured her into Grafenberg Woods, where he seized her by the throat and attempted to strangle her as he raped her. When she began to scream, he released the grasp on her throat before allowing her to leave. She did not report this assault to the police, um, but described her whole ordeal in a letter to a friend, and then she addressed that letter um, the wrong way. And so it ended up being opened by a mail clerk at the post office in the 19th of May. 
And when they read the letter, they were like, fuck. They went to the police. They were like, you need to check this out. And it was read by Chief Inspector Gannat, who assumed there was a slim chance that the assailant for Budlick was possibly the Dusseldorf murderer. Gannat interviewed Budlick, who recounted her ordeal, further divulging that one of the reasons Curtin had spared her was because he she had falsely informed him she could not remember his address. You'll remember he was like, just come to my house, we'll have dinner drinks, I live just right here. And he, she's like, I oh, know, I didn't remember that. Not at all. Well played, girl. Well played. She agreed to lead the police to Curtin's room. When the landlady of the property let Budlick into the room of 71 Medmanier Strasse, Budlick confirmed to Gannat that this was the address of her assailant. The landlady confirmed to the chief inspector that the tenant's name was Peter Curtin. He was not at home when they searched his property, but he spotted the pair in the communal hallway and he was like, uh-oh, I'm fucking bounced out. out. Knowing the jig was up, he confessed to his wife that he had raped her, and because of his previous convictions, he was going to probably be in prison for 15 years, and she would just be destitute. With her consent, he left and found lodgings in Alderstrasse, district of Dusseldorf, and didn't come home till May 23rd. Upon re returning home, he confessed to his wife that he actually was the vampire of Dusseldorf. He urged his wife to collect the substantial reward offered for his capture. And I know this sounds romantic, but he probably just his pants when he told her about it. Let's be honest. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. He was spontaneously ejaculating everywhere. <laughs> Are you shivering? No. <laughs> Augusta Curtin contacted the police the following day. In the information provided to detectives, she explained that she had known her husband had been repeatedly in prison in the past, but was unaware of his culpability in any murders. She then added that her husband had confessed to her his culpability in the Dusseldorf murders and that he was willing to confess to the police. Further, he was to meet her outside St. Roche's church later that day. Knowing he would soon be arrested, Curtin spent his last day of freedom having lunch, getting a haircut, and wandering around the park for a few hours before meeting his wife later that afternoon where she was waiting with the Dusseldorf police to take him into custody. What's a ger German food? That's really popular. Schnitzel? Yes, That's what he ate that day. <laughs> I remember reading that and being like, you had to go for the most German thing, huh? Like, I'm <laughs> sure they probably gonna serve that in jail. Shit. <sighs> he actually freely admitted his guilt and all the crimes police had attributed to the vampire Dusseldorf and then further confessed he committed the unsolved murder of Christine Klein and the attempted murder of Gertrude Franken in 1913. He provided an astonishingly detailed account of his string of crimes to Professor Carl Berg, a distinguished psychologist who later published the confession in a book called The Sadist. In total, Curtin admitted to 68 crimes, including nine murders and 31 attempted murders. He also admitted to both investigators and psychiatrists that the actual sight of victims' blood was, on many occasions, sufficient enough to bring him to orgasm. If we couldn't tell already. <laughs> he claimed to have drunk the blood from the throat of one victim, the temple of another, and to have licked a wound from a third victim's hands. In the Han murder, he said he had drunk so much blood from the neck wound, he ended up vomiting. Mm. There was even a, uh, he even told them a story where like, it was like a goose or something he caught, cut the head off, drank its blood. I'm like, sir. Jesus. Right? The fuck that goose do to you? <laughs> On the 13th of April, 1931, he stood trial in Dusseldorf. He was charged with nine counts of murder and seven counts of attempted murder and was tried before presiding judge 
Dr. Rose. He pleaded not guilty by the reason of insanity to each charge. Oh, he's crazy. Yeah, for real. Aside from delivering testimony, Curtin would spend the duration of his trial surrounded by a heavily guarded shoulder-high iron cage specifically constructed to protect him from attack by the enraged relatives of his victims, and his feet were shackled whenever he was inside the cage. When then asked by the presiding judge to describe why he continued to commit acts of arson throughout 1929 and 1930, Curtin explained, Then my desire for injuring people evoke the love of setting fire to things evoke as well. The sight of the flames excited me, but above all, it was the excitement of the attempts to extinguish that fire and the agitation of those who saw their property being destroyed. Several days into the trial, he instructed his defense attorney that he wished to change his plea from uh, not guilty to guilty. Addressing the court, he proclaimed, I have no remorse. As to whether recollection of my deeds makes me feel ashamed, I will tell you that thinking back to all the details is not at all unpleasant. I rather enjoy it. Probably was spontaneously ejaculating at that moment. <laughs> Further pressed as to whether he considered himself to possess a conscience, he stated, I have none. Never have I felt any misgiving in my soul. Never did I think to myself that what I did was bad, even though human society condemns it. My blood and the blood of my victims must be on the heads of my torturers. The punishments I have suffered have destroyed all my feelings as a human being. That was why I had no pity for my victims. Right. So we're supposed to feel bad for him, basically, is what he's saying. Pretty much. Like, and that the blood of him and the victims are on them? Yeah. Okay, like, okay. this is y'all's fault. Cool story, bro. This is why I keep jizzing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> the, t- the trial lasted 10 days, and on the 22nd of April, the jury retired to consider their verdict. They deliberated under two hours before reaching it, and he was found guilty and sentenced to death on nine counts of murder. He was also found guilty on seven accounts of attempted murder. He displayed no emotion as the sentence passed, although in his final address to court, he stated that he now saw his crimes as being so ghastly that he did not want to make any sort of excuse for them. He did not lodge an appeal for his conviction either. On the evening of July 1st, 1931, he received his last meal, also wiener schnitzel, <laughs> a bottle of wine, fried potatoes. He ate the whole meal, requested a second helping. Prison staff were like, you know what, fam? Got you. Gave him another plate. <laughs> At six o'clock in the morning on the 2nd of July, Peter Curtin was executed by Carl Grupelar with the guillotine. Shortly before his head was paced on the guillotine, Curtin turned to the psychiatrist and asked the question, tell me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. Jimmy's lustiger Fakten. According to studies, even after decapitation, there is still brain activity and levels of consciousness for up to 30 seconds. In fact, there have been reports of facial expression changes and focused eye movement to auditory stimuli. It is believed that hearing and touch are the last of your senses to go in the dying process. While it is a good thing he possibly felt the pain from his decapitation, that also means he may have received his pleasure to end all pleasures after all, before everything faded to black. When asked whether he had any last words to say, Curtin simply smiled and replied, Nine! 
Following Curtin's 1931 execution, his head was actually bisected and mummified. The brain was removed and subjected to forensic analysis in an attempt to explain his personality and behavior. Like uh, the Texas tower shooter in um, out west, like near Austin, like Texas Tech, that's it, I think. He ended up having like a brain tumor and that kind of explained why he went from being a normal human being to fucked up and killed a bunch of people. Um, Curtin's brain had no abnormalities. <laughs> the autopsy conducted upon it, his body revealed that aside from having an enlarged thymus gland, he had not been suffering any physical abnormality. He was just fucked up. His head was mummified and is actually still around. I've seen that. Yeah. Shortly after the Second World War, Curtin's head was transported to the United States and is currently in display at Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin, Dales, Wisconsin. And that's the story of Peter Curtin. That was horrifyingly disgusting. I feel like I need to go dip my head in a vat of bleach and brush my teeth and take a shower and any other way that you could cleanse your self. So when I was writing I'm gonna this. I'm going to get some of that holy Jordan water out and yeah, splash it on me. Just flick it everywhere. Sage the room. God damn. When I was writing it, I, when I knew I was going to be writing it, I was like, this is probably going to be a two-parter. As I was writing it, I was like, Mm-mm. nah, dog. Mm-mm. This is just so insane and out there. Like, there was no rhyme, no reason. He was just out there living his best freakish life, fucking animals, killing people, spontaneously ejaculating. Like, I could do that only in one episode. He's got to be one of the top five most disgusting. And he was proud of it, too, man. He was like... This was my thing, man. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, I don't know why y'all all think this is so wrong. No ruggert, son. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and bravo to Jimmy for his uh, voiceovers there. And very good writing, Jennifer. Very good. Oh, thank you. Very good. Uh, I knew that I couldn't do that the way Jimmy could. He just... No. Feeling dark, my Liebe. Oh, my God. He's I gonna... don't even know what that means. What did he say? Was thank that German? You. Thank you, my love. Oh, look at me. <laughs> I had to think about it. I was like, I know he says Lieben all the time, and I think that's love. Oh. It could be bitch. I don't know. Mm, you saying, might want to Google Translate it. Fuck you, bitch. That's probably what it actually means. And he just says it with a twinkle in his eye. And you're like, oh, he loves me so much. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> it's like our pet names. <laughs> you go to Germany, and he says it, and everybody turns and looks at you. And you're like, he's sweet, I know. And they're like, <laughs> Don't worry, ladies. He's mine. (laughs) (laughs) So, guys, check out our merch. Check out our socials. We are on the TikToks. Uh, Someone told me the other day that we should have a TikTok of Jimmy's fun facts. So, if you guys are interested in that, let us know. We'll make Jimmy do TikToks and shit. We will. be highly uncomfortable, and it'll be really funny for me. Yes. (laughs) Be awkward and adorable and funny. All rolled into one sweet little Jimmy package. If you have your own too close to stories to home stories, if um, you've met anyone like Peter Curtin, um, first off, sorry. Yeah, I apologize. I really hope that there is therapy, and I'm not even sure that's going to be enough. Yeah, uh, kudos to you. But mm. if you want to talk about it, I'm your girl. Hundred <laughs> percent. Holla at you. Holla we got at you. We got to lend an ear to lend to you. Exactly. Um, we got some more good stories coming your way. And until next time. Well, don't forget. Get on whatever platform you listen. Oh, that's right. Like us. Subscribe. subscribe. It does help us. Please do. We want to share 
The more we can share, the better. Of course. These lovely stories like this one. It was very heartwarming. To warm your heart and soul. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel. Oh, and don't bring it so close to home that, you know. You're spontaneously shit. ejaculating everywhere. Yeah. Please, please, no. Keep your ejaculations to yourself. Please do. I mean, I guess he kept them in his pants most of the time. So. Oh, my God. Could you imagine laundry day? Can you imagine his dry All those bill? pants just standing straight up. <laughs> oh, God. You just don't stop, do you, Jennifer? <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening.